0: Good evening. This is Karen Nutt, Director of Child Development Services with the Braille Institute. Welcome to our telephone series. We'd like to welcome Courtney Palm. Courtney is a licensed marriage family therapist, and she will be speaking to us on pediatric sleep and vision um, sleep issues for children who have visual impairments. Um, the telephone series is an educational series. Um, and it's a program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational okay. consult, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. So, um, I would like to welcome Courtney. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having
1: Having me, and um, I'm just gonna. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, which can be a little um, misleading actually, because I don't really do marriage and family therapy. I'm actually trained in uh, developmental child psychology, it actually falls under that clinical psychology umbrella. So I did my um, training at the Child Development Institute in California and did a subsequent specialty in behavioral sleep psychology because so many of the children that I was working with through the Early Intervention Program um, usually had a lot of sleep pieces going along with that diagnosis. Uh, I've done that now for about 17 years, and I'm currently in practice here in Colorado with the Early Intervention Program, and then I do work with some special groups outside of Early Intervention, uh, specifically as it relates to children who have developmental delay or a developmental condition affecting uh, different areas, uh, especially sleep. So, when we're talking about pediatric sleep and vision, one of the things that I always start with with any family that I work with is to really talk about how when I see families, um, especially families whose children have a medical or clinical diagnosis, that tends to kind of be the front runner when it comes to sleep. So, if I have a child that has autism, they assume that because the child has autism that that child will also have trouble with sleep. Um, And so, what can happen is that the diagnosis kind of overwhelms the uh, perspective a little bit because we, like, especially with children who have uh, vision impairment, we would assume that they're going to have difficulty with sleep related to circadian rhythm and things like that. And so, what happens sometimes is that we can put a lot of focus on what we know is going on. And what I always encourage parents and other providers to do is to still kind of do a full system review because a lot of the things that we know uh, affect sleep are really universal for all children this age, and we want to make sure that all of those areas are really buttoned up before we really lean into areas that are much more specific to that um, condition or experience of that child. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start with the things that are fundamental and essential for sleep for all children as it relates to um, different areas. So we're going to talk about factors that affect sleep. We're going to talk about nutrition and gut health sleep hygiene and sensory processing, um, and then going into some of the sleep specialties um, that some families may now or be connected with down the road. So once we get through this information, I will be leaving um, time at the end, and I can stand as long as you have questions, but time at the end to be able to answer things that are really more specific. Everyone's child is unique. So some of these things may apply for some and not others. So I do want to make sure that I leave a little bit of time so that if parents have questions specific to something that they're experiencing with their child, that hopefully I can give a little bit of direction in that area. So when we look at factors affecting sleep, um, we really want to look at all of these different pieces. So I've kind of developed this, this piece called the sleep triangle. Um, because my background is in psychology, um, psychologists tend to really lean hard onto behavior. You know, if kids aren't sleeping well, we want to look at routines. We want to look at reinforcement. We want to look at schedules. We want to look at all these things that could be reinforcing this behavioral pattern. Doctors are very systemically driven. Other areas can be really sensory driven. And really, we have to combine all these areas because they all affect and influence sleep and sleep quality. So when we're talking about systemic, systemic is really anything that's going to be physiologically related to sleep. We look at gut health, and that really is bowel movements, um, you know, any kind of uh, gut health issues, reflux, anything like that, um, respiratory patterns, mouth breathing, snoring, congested breathing, rapid breathing, skin conditions such as eczema, um, bumpy, rashy skin that we don't really know where it's coming from because the skin really tells us when something is happening internally. And so we want to take a closer look at that because it's the it's the body's way of cueing that something is inflamed or is maybe not imbalanced. Uh, allergies absolutely affect sleep quality. Diet and nutrition is a huge piece, especially for kids in this age group because their eating tends to be very inconsistent. Um, I also know that for children with visual uh, impairment, we can also have some feeding delays or feeding aversion related to how well they're seeing and understanding or how they're being prepped for what they're eating. And so that can eliminate certain food groups which um, from a texture standpoint might just be off-putting if you're not really um, well-prepared for what's coming into your mouth. And then neurological activity, we would put vision into this category as well. Um, This also would include things uh, like increased electrical activity in the brain, such as seizure disorders. So this is kind of this piece that we really, really want to start with because if the systemic is not in balance, we really don't know what else is influencing it because I've certainly worked with kids who had um, what looked like just really big sleep behaviors. They didn't want their parents to leave them at bedtime. They woke up in the middle of the night five or six times to come get their parents and outwardly it looked like a behavior. It looked like this kid just wants the parent to be with them or this child's experiencing anxiety or separation anxiety. And for most of those kids that I worked with, that was really never what was going on. Uh, Most of those kids had a systemic sleep problem that was actually causing them to have anxiety at bedtime because they knew that sleep wasn't easy, that they were going to have trouble falling asleep, that they were going to wake up a lot. And then when children wake up a lot, they don't want to lay in the dark awake by themselves. They want to come find someone that makes them feel comforted. And so if we just treated it from a behavior standpoint, we were going to have a lot of kids having intense anxiety about sleep because now not only do they not have that support, they're still not sleeping well. And so, you know, that's kind of why I always start with this kind of systemic uh, checklist with families because I don't ever want to put a child on a plan that is based on sensory strategies, based on behavior, based on routines, if I don't know that all of these pieces are lined up to support regulated sleep rhythm. Um, the sensory piece of that is really just looking at the prep that they have leading up to bedtime. You know, are they having high activity before bed? Or are they having low activity? how conducive is the room for sleep? Are they room sharing? Um, You know, how regulated is the nervous system in the evening? Some kids tend to get more hyper as they get tired, you know, different pieces like that are really what make up sensory as well as the bed in general. Um, How, you know, how much is that meeting their sensory needs? Some kids really need a lot of compression. They need that kind of nested feeling in their bed. And, you know, we want to make sure that we have, those pieces set up because from a systemic standpoint and from a sensory standpoint, this is out of their control. These are not things that they can really help us with. These are the things that we can help them with. And then finally, the behavior pieces, which I think a lot of parents are very familiar with, is looking at the predictability of routines, understanding what parents are going to do as the routine is carried out, any kind of props or crutches that kids are maybe overusing for sleep that are then later interfering with sleep quality during the night. How well a child is able to self-soothe. And then again, those parental response patterns during wakes during the night. I will say this for a lot of the families that I work with, I find that behavior is um, especially for older children, you know, when we have babies, maybe we have a little bit of that as they're coming off of the routine of infancy of held to sleep, rocked to sleep, um, fed to sleep, things like that. But as they get older, oftentimes that behavior is more the symptom and not the true issue of the the sleep disruption. So when we talk about diet and nutrition, um, this is important just because we're really looking at the types of foods that a child eats during the day and how stable um, blood sugar levels are, how well the sleep nutrients are being met. Because a lot of kids, especially younger age kids, um, kind of go through a stage where they eat what they feel like that day or they get, you know, into a pickier stage. And usually the consistent foods are going to be carbs, um, you know, crackers and fruit and things like that, which are tasty and they're certainly important. You know, your brain needs carbohydrates, but um, it doesn't help your blood sugar stay stable if there's no protein coming in around that. And so one of the things that I talk with parents about is what amount of Protein is your child getting in combination with the carbohydrates that they're consuming so that they're not spiking and dropping, because that can really have a pretty big effect on that, especially at night, and especially for kids who may wake with um, hunger or different things like that. The in terms of the nutritional sleep components, the, the main are iron magnesium, and vitamin D. So, iron is the most important mineral that we have for sleep. It is also the most difficult to consume in volume needed to be in the optimal range. So, parents may have had their children's iron levels checked periodically and told they're in the normal range, Um, but you can have a child whose iron is in normal range that is still not in optimal range for sleep. So, when talking with a pediatrician, or if you're working with a sleep doctor, they already are aware of this, but if you're talking with a pediatrician and you're having concern about iron based in your child's diet and subsequent sleep pattern, what we're really looking at is their ferritin number. So ferritin is that iron store, and what the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has found is that children need to be 50 or higher on their ferritin score to be able to have regulated sleep. Now, unfortunately, normal ferritin is on a range from 10 to 60, So if you're getting your iron checked and it's anywhere in that range, you may be told it's normal. If it is below 50, then we would expect to see some sleep disruption. So iron is regulating length and quality of sleep. So when we have, I'm not going to say low, but just suboptimal levels of ferritin, we get trouble falling asleep, waking during the night, restless sleep, moaning and crying in their sleep middle-of-the-night insomnia, where they're just wide awake inexplicably for several hours in the night, and um, waking up early in the morning, dropping naps at too young of an age. And so iron is really, really important for that. And so when you're looking at that number, you know, what's recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics for, uh, honestly, from birth is 10 milligrams per day. So birth to four years is 10 milligrams a day. As you get older, that actually increases. But 10 milligrams per day in food amount is 20 eggs. So you can imagine the amount of protein that a child would need to consume to get that much iron into the system. And then in addition to that, a lot of kids are still um, having a high calcium diet. They're drinking milk, even if they're drinking alternative milk, which has calcium added to it, cheese, yogurt, so lots and lots of calcium. Calcium is good, except calcium stops the absorption of iron. And so if your child's eating a big old hamburger and slugging down a big glass of whole milk with it... That iron is really not going to absorb from the meat, and that's why a lot of kids in this age category fall into that normal but not optimal range for ferritin levels as it relates to iron. Um, the other one is magnesium. Magnesium naturally calms the nervous system. It also regulates limb movement. Um, for some of the mothers on this call, uh, it's very common for pregnant women to have restless leg, and the number one treatment for that is magnesium. So magnesium recommended at this age, about 100 milligrams per day. Uh, Food equivalent is one avocado. Now, some kids eat that, so great. Um, Other kids are maybe not big on avocado or not eating that quantity, and so we're really looking at, you know, kind of evaluating overall what their diet is. The upside with magnesium is it actually goes very well with calcium, so that isn't an issue that we have with magnesium absorption. It really is just a big iron. And then, finally, vitamin D. This that's regulates the circadian momentum, rhythm, which is, is really important. And, you know, we're seeing that kids need 400 units per day of vitamin D. Again, most multivitamins are going to have something in that range, but that's these are kind of the recommended amounts. Now, when we're looking at vitamins, supplements, things like that, I do want to be very clear. This is information for parents to use to look at their kid's diet, look at the calcium levels to communicate this with their child's primary care physician Uh, if they're working with a nutritionist. It needs to be directed by your child's primary care doctor. Um, But sometimes the doctor doesn't know um, how much that child's eating or if they're consuming a high level of calcium and so this is important for the doctor to know so they can understand why we have concern about this as it is coupled with sleep disruption. Um, So I did put some um, of the, supplements that I've recommended for parents just as um, a resource for families if the doctor is recommending it or suggesting it, and those are kind of listed there, mostly found on Amazon, but you can certainly find them at Walmart, Target, different places like that. Okay, so I'm just going to return to that slide I was just talking about. Okay. um, In terms of the iron amounts, the magnesium, and the vitamin D, Um, and then... These were the uh, the supplement brands that I've uh, certainly used with families that I've worked with that I find that are, um, I think, affordable, easy to access, uh, very clean, reputable companies. So, again, just going back to when you discuss this with your child's uh, pediatrician or if you're working with a nutritionist through a program, um, that really comes from them. They know your child specifically, but these are things to bring up to them because they only know what we tell them and sometimes we Just didn't know that that was an issue to bring up. So, um, okay. So, moving on to kind of this gut-brain connection. So, why this is an area that we really want to look at is that we know that we produce melatonin, but people associate melatonin, which is our sleep hormone, as this kind of neurochemical that's coming out, you know, as you have less light information, it stimulates melatonin production. Obviously, this is something that we know is really um, a pretty integral part of sleep as it relates to children who may have uh, decreased light um, or no perceived light. And so, it's something that's talked about a lot. Um, The other piece, though, is that a large portion of melatonin is actually produced in the gut and absorbed in the intestine. And so, when we have children who have some kind of gut inflammation, whether that's causing diarrhea, whether it's causing... Um, constipation or combination of diarrhea and constipation, then we know that that is contributing to malabsorption of certain nutrients. Some of those being the ones that we just talked about, the iron, the magnesium, the vitamin D, but also the the melatonin that is produced in the gut. And so that's why we want to see nice, consistent, soft-form stool. When we don't, we know that something is contributing to that. Because when we see kids this age, who are not having consistent regulated bowel movements, we really want to find out what's going on because these systems all work together. You can't separate them out. We can't say, well, we're, you know we just want to focus on the sleep part. This is a kind of a GI issue because they're working together. There's neurons in the gut that are communicating with neurons in the brain, and that gut brain connection is, is very, very strong. And so, looking at your child's overall bowel movements and if you're seeing that they're not regulated, really getting to the source of that can have direct impact on overall regulation during the day and overall regulation as it relates to sleep. So, um, when we see this, um, you know, of course, we're going to expect to see bloating and, and. stomach irritation or gas or different things. That, again, we see that a lot more with younger children than school-aged children. Um, I've had some parents whose children were having those issues, and then they were put on Miralax, which was solving that problem, but at the same time, not really getting to the source of why they weren't going to the bathroom in the first place. And so it is something that I do kind of really focus on with parents. Of, I'm glad they're getting relief now. I definitely don't want them to be backed up, and I'm not going to ever... Um, discount what a physician is saying about it, but we still want to get to the source of that because oftentimes it is, if it's not a structural issue um, from a GI standpoint, then it's largely going to be something in their diet that is just not digesting well. And that is going to really affect their their sleep quality. So, you know, before we move on to this next section, just kind of, you know, as an overview, when we are thinking about evaluating the systemic parts for sleep, um, and it's interesting. I was reading a study in the Clinical Journal of Sleep Medicine where they had done um, a, a kind of a research with families of children between the ages of 7 and 18 who had vision impairment, uh, different types of vision impairment, but um, with sleep difficulty what they ended up finding was that a lot of the children had systemic sleep problems. A lot of them ended up having sleep apnea, low ferritin. Um, so, other things that were affecting it that, again, were kind of getting passed over because the the diagnosis of vision impairment as it relates to sleep was kind of overwhelming the perspective. And so, if we're seeing children snoring and mouth breathing, that really has to be brought to the doctor because those can be contributing factors to either obstructed breathing at night, which is never conducive to good rest for anyone, um, all the way up to children having sleep apnea. Um, And so when we see things in that category, when we see the skin, when we see the bowel movements, when we look at the overall nutritional piece, we really want to make sure that those are all in line and in range for what we would expect for their age before we start evaluating other things related to something as specific as how much the vision is playing a role in that sleep disruption. So when we talk about sleep hygiene, um, you know, sleep hygiene is just the same as saying healthy sleep habits. Um, It's just routines that promote um, healthy sleep on a regular basis. Those are things such as consistent sleep schedules, um, making sure that kids have enough wake time between sleep events, making sure that they're winding down and having calmer, more uh, low stimulating play, predictable pre-sleep routines that help cue the brain that it's time to start releasing that melatonin. And so, you know, as kids get older, and we're going to see a shift in that kind of window of wake time as kids get older, you know, for babies, once they are out of that infant stage, when they're about six months to, honestly, I'll go to 16 months, We should see them sleeping 11 to 12 hours at night. And then most babies will fall into what we call a two, three, four pattern during the day. So awake for two hours, and then they nap for about an hour and a half or so, awake for three hours, another hour and a half or so nap, awake for four hours, and then down for bed. Now, what can happen is some parents will get stuck on that four hour interval between nap and bedtime. So even when their kids move into toddler age, which is about 17 to 36 months, and they shift to a one nap schedule, the parents are still sometimes putting them down too early. They're only giving them four hours between naps and bedtime because that's just what they've always been up to this point. And unfortunately, once we switch to a one-nap schedule, that changes that wake interval as well. So on a one-nap schedule, your children from 17 to 36 months still need 11 to 12 hours of sleep at night, but now they can do about five to five-and-a-half hours of awake time and they take a two-ish hour nap and then another five to five-and-a-half hours and then down for bed. And so sometimes I'll see parents where they're concerned about what we call delayed sleep onset, which just means it's taking them a really long time to fall asleep, but I'll find out that they woke up at 3 p.m. from their nap and they got put down at 7 p.m. for bed, and then they're falling asleep at 8.30. So for that parent who's, you know, stuck trying to get this toddler to sleep for an hour and a half, that feels like very delayed sleep onset. From a sleep standpoint, that just seems like they put their child to bed an hour and a half too early. And so really want to make sure that the intervals when your child is at an age where they are still napping is being taken into account because that can absolutely drag out that that bedtime. Um, once children drop the nap, then they still, of course, are going to need that 11 to 12 hours until they're five. Um, but during the day, they can do 12 to 13 hours of wait time before they go to sleep. And then for school-age children, so five and older, again, the sleep needs stay. Pretty, you know, pretty up there with you know wanting them to be anywhere from nine to ten hours of sleep per night. So the sleep overnight stays pretty lengthy for for a good period of time, and we want to make sure that even when they have dropped that nap, that we're getting um, good, consistent, uninterrupted sleep uh, at night. So um, so when we kind of talk about those intervals, that's really what we're looking at is how much time awake based on the age of the child and if they're still napping or not. Calm activities, things like that prior to bedtime uh, is really just switching to things that are more fine motor driven, um, you know, whether it's doing fidgets while you're listening to music, if it's uh, doing some kind of calming sensory, rocking in a chair, cuddling, Um you know, really just depends on something that your child finds regulating that is not going to excite the nervous system. Um, And then that pre-sleep routine. So they do need that transition even as they get older and are school-aged between I was fully awake, engaging with my family, and now I'm in a room by myself in the dark. Even if they're not in a room by themselves, even if it's with the parents and they're in the room and there's no one else doing anything or nothing else is happening, it's still we need there to be a transition period there. that I didn't just go from full stimulation, full input to zero input. That's that's too much of a downshift for young children. They need to go from that calm to even, you know, weaning it down more of reading aloud to them, listening to stories. Um, I know that there's different podcasts that some parents have for their kids that they read books or different things like that, um, you know, rubbing their arms, rubbing their backs, rubbing their hair, anything that you've found that your child really calms down with and giving them about 15 to 20 minutes of that, really prep to down kind of downtrend that nervous system to so this. then when they're laying down they're already kind of teed up to be in a more optimal zone of regulation to then fall asleep because once a child is laying down with the intention of sleep so the routine is over the the house is, has kind of stopped the input has stopped it still takes 15 to 20 minutes to fall asleep at that point so we really want to make sure that there is that 15 to 20 minute transition before everything' really just So, sensory support for sleep is, is definitely a big piece of this. So, you know, compression is the most um, significant type of sensory input because of the fact that you learn to sleep in utero first and you're rolled up in a little ball with lots of compression. And so, the brainstem, which is that first neuro structure that's developing in utero, um, pairs compression with regulation. Um, that's why when you're upset, sometimes it feels good to have a deep hug. You know, it feels good for an emotional reason, but it also feels good for a sensory reason. We are kind of primed to seek um, compression. Some people will even give themselves compression. Um, you know, so for infants, we see that with swaddling, or when they're awake, you know, they're in the baby carriers and they're kind of tucked up with you. But those cues, that that compression, is a really primitive cue for sleep. And you know. It, it happens in utero, so it's, it's wired in pretty deeply. Um, as children are over the age of one, and we are not in that risk category anymore for SIDS or accidental suffocation, and they, um, from a motor development standpoint, have been given the green light by the pediatrician, we can start modifying that bed. They don't need to sleep on an ultra-hard surface anymore because a firm surface like that is actually not conducive to great sleep. It's conducive to great safety. But once they are not in that risk category anymore, we can put a foam topper on the bed. We can put little blanket rolls under the fitted sheet. I have some parents who get DACA tots. Some parents of, you know, toddler or preschool or school-age children will find that weighted blankets are helpful. Again, a weighted blanket is based on the weight of your child. It's 10% of their body weight. So I do tell parents, talk with a doctor or occupational therapist if you have access to one or a early childhood uh, educator that you're working with because wall-weighted blankets can be helpful. I've also had a parent who was using a 20-pound blanket on their two-year-old, which is not safe. Now, the parent had no poor intentions. She just knew it made her sleep better, and the child liked it. But, but yeah, definitely that compression is the primary sensory input that humans associate with sleep because of our gestational experience. Uh, Temperature is another one. So, the ideal temperature for sleep is 67 to 72 degrees. So, you know, a slightly cooler room. Um, If you're getting hot when you're sleeping, you are definitely likely to wake up. For young children, getting hot during sleep or seeing sweating in sleep can trigger night terrors and screaming in their sleep. Um, So, we want to make sure that as much as we can control for that, either the temperature is set in that way or for families who may not have uh, AC running in the summer to have their kids dressed very lightly, have some fans circulating the air just to kind of regulate that body temperature. Um, for sound, at least for the first uh, three years, we like to have a low natural white noise, fan, sound machine, I really like the dome sound machine, uh, D-O-H-M, because it's natural white noise, um, doesn't really bother the ear as much. So music and things like that as a prep for sleeper grade, I do find that just as sound that doesn't change in pitch and tone just kind of helps filter out some of the sounds at the house. A lot of kids are going to bed when the family is still somewhat awake, so we just want to kind of filter out some of those sharp sounds. Um, when they're, you know, close to four or five, we just reduce that down because we want to make sure that they can learn to sleep without it. Um, as an adult who whose parents never stopped running a fan, I still sleep with a fan <laughs> at night, so why we wean them off at five is so that they don't become conditioned to it. But we know in the first three years, especially the auditory processing is new and immature, and it it picks up certain sounds that – and reports it at a higher level. So, that's why we use a little bit of natural white noise to um, to treat some of that. Um, That tactile input, which is in the compression family, but still in a different area. So, that's the um, massage, rhythmic padding. Some kids have loveys or stuffies that they rub on their face. Um, So, again, anything that is patterned, repetitive, and rhythmic is very regulating for the part of the brain that is responsible for your sleep. And so, you know, rocking as part of the pre-sleep routine, padding as support for helping fall asleep, things like that are very regulating to the nervous system. Um, We see taste coming up, I would say, more specifically with babies. They tend to associate the flavor profile of breast milk or formula with sleep because they oftentimes have it right before they go to sleep or when they are feeling drowsy. And so, it can actually be helpful for for some children to have that um, association, especially as they get older, if they only have it around sleep. The more that we really make something super specific to sleep, um, the more helpful it is as a cue for the brain. Um, Smell can be part of this. Some children are sensitive to smell, so this is not something for every child, but I do know that some families will do uh, lavender essential oils or different ones that they have found that they find that help. Um, and then of course we're gonna talk about the, the vision piece of that sensory component, because of course that's a that's a major contributor to regulation of sleep. So when we're thinking about sight and vision, what we're what we're looking at from a sleep standpoint is light. So light is one of the main regulators of your circadian rhythm. Um, because light is, you know, kind of reported into the retina. The retina reports that light information to the pineal gland in the brain, and that gland releases melatonin. And so oftentimes when we have um, decreased light uh, perception or no perception of light, we're going to have a disruption in that response pattern. The retina is not going to report that to that gland. That gland is not going to know to release it, because that's a main cue that it will use as a way to stimulate the the natural release of melatonin. Um, So I will say its level of impact is very, very child specific. Um, You know, we're going to see the highest level of impairment causing circadian rhythm disorder, primarily with children who have no perceived light uh, or no perception of light. Um, But any disordered light information can disrupt the sleep rhythm, absolutely. And so we know that this is a sensory factor that can contribute to disruption of uh, regulated circadian rhythm. So, what we kind of, what they talk about when they look at um, different research and studies into vision impairment as it relates to sleep disruption is this idea of entrainment, so matching the internal circadian rhythm with the external environment. People primarily are using light information to inform the circadian rhythm, Um, but, In these cases where we know that that is going to be limited, we are going to have to then lean heavy on other sensory cues that are going to still signal the brain to release melatonin. So even though light is definitely an important component to that, it is not the only way to cue the brain to release melatonin. So what I tell parents is to take these sensory associations for the other senses but really, really, really limit them just to pre-sleep events. So if you have a scent that you want to use, you're only going to bring the scent out or diffuse it or put it on their feed or different things like that at times for sleep. Same with certain types of music. We're just going to position those. And the the younger they are when we start this, the more powerful that that is as a cue to the brain. Um, Consistent sleep space. So um, it's it's hard when you want to have some flexibility with it. Now, we want to try to go as specific as we can because that will give us the most return on that effort. But obviously, parents are take vacations. or kids sometimes are in daycare or preschool, and they're napping there, and they're napping at home. Or maybe they do a nanny share. They stay with grandparents, and that's okay. They're still laying down. Um, but even with that consistency, um, if, you know, as much control as parents have over that, you know, they're not... Having music or TV on in the background while the child's trying to sleep, if they're at a grandparents' house or, or with a, a nanny, or that they are laying down for that, that they're not riding around in the car for nap time and then trying to lay down for sleep time, vice versa. And so we want to really make that space as consistent as we can and try to use some of the same pieces if the child's not going to be doing all of the sleep in the same area, or for children who have two different homes that they're going to go between having those sleep spaces be as dialed in as possible because that will also naturally stimulate the brain to release melatonin. The other piece that can consistently help prep the nervous system for sleep is what we call increase to decrease body temperature. And that just means that when children take a uh, warm, hot shower, warm, hot bath, that it's going to pull um, the... uh, you know, that that body heat up to the surface of the skin, they come out and it drops that body temperature back down and that forces all the other systems within the nervous system to come down as well. You know, that's the nice thing about the nervous system is it works, you know, as a unit. So if one comes down, they all come down with it. If body temp is coming down, respiration is slowing down, um, blood pressure is coming down, all of those things that we need to kind of be in a more optimal state for falling asleep are coming down with it. And so, I do find this helpful unless a child has a sensory aversion to water or things like that. And then in that situation, um, then this probably wouldn't be that helpful. Um, so it's, again, specific to kids, but that is partially why they recommend bath time as part of a pre-sleep routine. Um not that they're picturing your child laying there with, you know, classic music on and candles. It's because they know that it's going to pull that um, <clears throat> that body heat away, up to the skin level, and then when they get out, it's going to drop everything down. So these are some of the sensory strategies that we can use to try to still stimulate natural release of melatonin without having as much of that light information or any light information cueing it in the way that it might for other people. So when we, you know, have looked into these different areas, so we've looked into the systemic pieces that are not related to vision, And those are in a a great spot. We've looked at the sensory components, the sleep hygiene components, and we're still not getting the result of that optimal sleep amount that I was talking about earlier based on age. Then we move into this medical intervention category. So, what's important for all families to know is that if you have worked with a sleep therapist, if you've been working with your pediatrician, or you're working with an early childhood educator or someone who knows, child specifically and we're still not getting them into that optimal range, that's not the end of the line. There are pediatric sleep medicine doctors. Um, They have them at all the children's hospitals. They have their own sleep clinics. Um, They also have sleep psychologists that work as part of those clinics. And when you've kind of checked all these boxes and we're still having a big question mark over what's going on, it is important to then work with that specialist because these are doctors who are then additionally board certified in sleep medicine, and, and this is really their focus. They're looking at all of the information about your child as it relates specifically to sleep. And they are going to look at all of these systemic areas that we've talked about as well because they want the full picture. So when we look at medical intervention for children with vision impairment, a lot of times what we're seeing is uh, melatonin to you know, melatonin over the counter is a synthetic hormone that replicates your natural sleep hormone um, for children who are not able to have enough of that melatonin release because of um, decreased light perception or no perceived light, Um, the melatonin can then kind of take in for that. One thing I just like to make as a note to parents with with regard to melatonin is, number one, I do, once I'm talking with their doctor, even a sleep medicine doctor before, just you can try it, of course, based on the age of your child, but Melatonin um, is something that it can cause bedwetting at night. Um, If children have iron and ferritin levels that are in that kind of suboptimal range, it can actually make their sleep worse. Um, It can cause really bizarre dreams to happen. And so, again, it's important that other pieces are dialed in because oftentimes melatonin short-term can work really well, and then long-term, they either have to take more and more of it or it starts to really disrupt their sleep rhythm even more in an exaggerated way. And so, um, so for some families, melatonin can be helpful, but again, it, it shouldn't supersede all of these other pieces that we talked about coming in first. Um, if the melatonin doesn't work, some sleep medicine doctors then move to sleep medication. Some of the ones that you may hear are clonidine, gabapentin, trazodone, things like that. Um, again, need to be prescribed by a sleep medicine doctor. Um, some Doctors do bright light therapy, and they work with uh, ophthalmologists or orthoptists with the patient. Um, and then, of course, they're going to check those iron and ferritin labs, and may prescribe or not recommend iron, magnesium, and vitamin D as well. Um, the American Academy of Medicine is very in the forefront of educating providers and families about the importance of iron, so they always screen that right out of the gate because they want to make sure it's in good range. So, when we get to this point and when, you know, if you have a child who is having um, sleep difficulty or if they're not at this time but down the road do, um, it's important to know exactly what sleep specialist you may be being referred to um, because there's kind of a a spectrum of different providers. So, um, sleep coaches um, are people who hopefully have have gone through um, a certification course, Uh, a lot of sleep coaching courses, I would say, or maybe like a 30-hour certification course. Again, you don't have to do that because this is not um, a licensed um, uh, discipline or field. So there are people who have a natural interest in sleep and maybe are parents themselves and, and got into parent education or parents as teachers, and I'm certainly not going to disparage sleep coaches. I appreciate any person who has an interest in helping families get their, their families more sleep. Um, but a sleep coach is someone who does not require a specific license or degree and can have certified training that comes with this kind of certificate or may have done their own self-taught, but that would put them in that sleep coach category. Uh, sleep therapist is a master's level licensed therapist who had specialized training. They're usually a year to two years long um, related to behavioral sleep psychology. A sleep psychologist is a doctoral level licensed therapist also with that specialized training. And then, of course, a sleep medicine physician is a medical doctor with a specialized residency. Um, I did include at the bottom here the requirements just so that parents are able to know kind of which specialists they're getting if they're, they're seeking consultation. So, what I've put here is when to see a specialist. So, if you're just seeing behavioral um, resistance for sleep, we know all the other areas are fine and you just have concern about just habits, schedules, routines, um, providing alternatives, soothing strategies, things like that. This is when uh, I think a sleep coach is really appropriate. They can really help with that. I mean, again, based on their experience and, and training level, but this is you know what we look at. Just peer behavior, right over here, when a parent is looking for both, when they want developmental strategies, they want that systemic screener, they want screening for development and sensory, um, then a sleep therapist and sleep psychologist is going to be the right person to work with them because even though they do not treat anything that is medical, they can screen for it so they can give the parents information to share with the appropriate medical provider in addition to providing behavioral intervention. And then, of course, all medical strategies have to be from a sleep medicine physician, nurse practitioner, or someone who is medically qualified to get advice and intervention. Um, They're typically going to provide medical screening, blood work, sleep studies, things like that. And so, again, we just want to make sure that the right specialist is paired with the right needs so that um, parents are getting helpful advice, helpful strategies, and are not having, uh, if we start with a behavior strategy when a child has a systemic problem, it's not going to work. And that's uh, you know, an expense for the family, but it's also extremely stressful for the family and the child. And if it doesn't work in the end of it, it, it can be very um, discouraging because you've, you've done the right thing. So these are the pieces that we're really looking for when looking at what level of intervention is required for your child's sleep. So um, I know I just <laughs> ran through a lot of information in 45 minutes, but I just wanted to try to give each family as much of this piece as I can in this amount of time. But I did want to save this last uh, 15 minutes for families that may have more specific questions or questions about some of the pieces that we've talked about um, in the, the previous slides. So, um, if there are any questions, I'm I'm going to stay on here for a little bit and happy to answer them.
2: Um, my son, he's uh, 2 years old and no light perception. You're talking about his circadian rhythm. Um, he, he too, he takes a one-hour nap at early intervention, and then when he comes home, he usually gets home at seven p.m. It seems like he's pretty tired from the day, and he seems to just go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he will wake up until probably. Mm, 11 p.m., and then it's like, he has so much energy again, Um then goes to, then is awake for about, I would say, five, six hours, then goes to sleep at 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., two hours, two hours sleep, and then he's awake the entire day until we do that again, but um I... Giving him melatonin well, probably two days. It, it didn't seem to make a difference for him. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But but thank you for all that information about you know, blood sugar and all that. But that's okay. his only. Um, is he's
3: now exiting.
1: So I will say, and you and you did say he does take a one hour nap when he's at early intervention. Yeah, he
2: goes from nine a.m. to. 5 p.m. and he only takes one hour nap
1: there. Okay so I mean I will say you know again what's hard is that because of you know that you know no perception of light piece, we're going to assume that the circadian rhythm is going to be off. Um, However that sleep pattern is the exact same pattern I see for kids who have ferritin levels that are in those suboptimal ranges which is right around age. You know the first year of life Kids are on breast milk, formula, baby cereal, and that's just iron, 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 iron. And then when they turn one or whenever they wean or come off a of formula, um, they lose their main source of iron. And then around 18 months to 24 months, that beautiful stored up ferritin that they had from the first year has slowly dropped down. And then whoop, all of a sudden we start having a really short sleep stretch and we get middle of the night insomnia. And so it may be related to um, the fact that, you know, he doesn't have perception of light But, again, um, I would want to make sure that that ferritin level was 50 or higher before, um, because if it isn't, it's actually kind of amazing how quickly it it really regulates out that sleep stretch. Um, And just given the fact that he is not really having delayed onset to sleep, but more of that middle of the night insomnia, again, that can be a circadian rhythm disorder, but that also is really um, very, very central to suboptimal ferritin levels. And so unfortunately, the only way to know that is to have a a blood draw to get a ferritin number. But also I tell parents just look at their diet. You can add it up from the nutritional (laughs) information and see pretty quickly what you think they're getting in a day. Talk with the doctor about just trying an over-the-counter, you know, vitamin with iron for two and older and and trying it for a month to see how it helps. Um, You know, one thing that is important to remember
2: that's a good that's a good idea because he's actually on liquid he's only on the liquid diet on a plant based diet. Mm-hmm. Um so if he doesn't get that, he doesn't get any baby cereal, he doesn't feeding uh, he has feeding aversion, so he doesn't do that yet. Um mm-hmm. so that can definitely affect him
1: um the way that he's eating <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it is, I mean honestly it's a reason why adults don't sleep very well. It's really hard to get that mineral in at that level and and I will say for any parent who is talking about with their doctor it's important to remember if your child is taking a vitamin with iron then it needs to be um they need to avoid calcium for an hour before and an hour after at minimum to give it time to absorb. Vitamin C helps iron absorb, some vitamins already have it added in so it's not an issue. If your kiddo likes orange juice or things like that, that helps it absorb faster. Um, but I just wanted to say that just in case you're talking about with the doctor and it, it doesn't get mentioned that you do have to keep that calcium away from the iron for an hour before and after taking or it really won't fully absorb.
2: No orange juice is said.
1: What's that? No, no, orange juice is no good. Uh, uh, yeah, we just want to avoid calcium? calcium for an hour before and after, but orange juice has vitamin C. So anything with vitamin C helps iron absorb faster. Uh, he hasn't tried that yet. I mean, he hasn't, oh. <laughs> he and he doesn't, doesn't have to. He, he doesn't, doesn't have to have try. it with it. Some parents are like, "Oh, well, they love orange juice. Great, <laughs> I was going to them with their orange juice." But <laughs> again, just talk with your your pediatrician about it. But that is definitely something worth trying because it does take mm-hmm. ferritin about a month to build back into an optimal range. So you have to be pretty consistent with it every day. Um, but even after two weeks, some parents will say they see at least a fifty percent improvement. And then just as they can keep it going for another four to six weeks then we kind of get them back into that optimal range. Thank
2: you. Yes, you're welcome. Um,
0: somebody had their hand raised. Hold on. Oh. Hold in. Um, Parker?
1: Oh, yes, Parker, I'm going to put those levels back up for you just one second There we go.
3: And so, okay. I had this, Parker, I had another question. So, my son um, snores like crazy. He has light sensitivity, so he's diagnosed with photophobia. So Mm -hmm. we have to, like, he has transitional lenses, plus, we got to wear shades over the glasses to darken enough for him because it actually causes pain for him. Um, And he also mentions, uh, I say quite a bit lately, that his stomach hurts. Mm. That's all he can tell me. Okay. He can't describe what kind of pain it is. He says it hurts. And And so. how old is your son? He's six. He's six. Okay. And so he's also now, like, he's been slowly losing his vision and kind of now his brain's kind of recognized the vision loss. So we're having mm-hmm. a lot of sensory changes in the last few months. So, like, taste, sound, mm-hmm. like, touch is, like, changing. He wants a lot of more cuddling now lately. He would have his night terrors. So there's, like, a lot of changing right now at, at kind of one time. And I'm noticing too, like you mentioning, like the, the stomach stuff, like even, you know, he's in stomach, he says his like hurts, but he can't tell me anything past that.
1: And I will say this so, you know, if if he is snoring, um, has he been evaluated by an ENT yet for that? No, because
3: I was originally told, oh, kids snore, like no big deal. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I didn't like, look into it until you said it today, and I'm like, snores every night.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I that, honestly, that's where I would start because when kids are snoring, and also having night terrors, that is a major sign of sleep apnea. Okay. And um, okay. only, I mean, the ENT is going to again. I hate that you have to do this in medicine. That you have to go to that specialist, but you have to go to that specialist because they're the ones that really are going to take those pieces and put them together and say, oh, they're not sleeping well. Their, you know, all these other, their sensory processing is becoming even more disorganized, which is also a symptom of chronic fatigue. And so again, it's hard because with this vision piece, it feels like, okay, well, now the brain is recalibrating and um, now it's going to over-report the information of the other senses, which may be happening. But also, if you have sleep apnea and your sleep quality at night is really poor, even if you're not waking, even if you're just snoring all night, you're not getting good quality sleep, then that's also going to do the same thing to your sensory processing. It's going to have that what we call intermittent disrupted processing where you can over-report and under-report sensory information. So they seek in some ways and they avoid in other ways. And so um my advice would be, well, number one, my advice for everyone is always look into that iron piece. It is so important. And for parents, take iron as well. <laughs>
3: it's really he, he had an iron issue when he was younger, but I fixed it with diet. So so far, like we've been good... But I have never gotten the um, other test done, just the uh, iron. So I don't know. <laughs> I've only gotten iron, maybe saying, oh, he's, he's back in normal levels. And I've been able to fix it with food. I'm um, doing like you're saying, I've been getting like spinach to make sure it's a vitamin C component when I have the food, low on milk. So like we're cutting out all the cheese and yogurt and dairy. I don't really stack up in one day. So like that's been good food wise. he hasn't needed a supplement, but then I didn't know about the other um lab to check for for the iron as well.
1: I would just in general but I would say my main concern for him would really be um okay. adenoid and tonsil size. Yep, because you know, mostly they can see the tonsil size and they're doing it a check but they cannot see the adenoids without doing a soft tissue x-ray of the head and neck okay. unless they want to camera up your nose, which I don't recommend for children. Um and uh, because your adenoids are above the roof of your mouth, behind your sinuses, and as they get bigger, they can compress the sinuses. That means that you can have, um, if you get sick, it can take longer to get over it. It can start causing ear infections. It can cause um, auditory processing difficulty because you can get fluid built up behind the eardrum, even if it's not infected. Um, sometimes kids will start doing more vestibular seeking where they're spinning around more or hanging backwards a lot more, doing things to move the fluid around that's behind their eardrum. And mm. so, um, and if they do have any residual fluid behind the ear as a result of enlarged adenoids, it can cause them to scream in their sleep or wake up screaming because the pressure builds and it hurts. So, um, so I would definitely start with the ENT, getting that x-ray done, um, letting them know, you know, different pieces with sleep and that sensory processing is becoming more difficult. And then, um, and then I would say this: if if that isn't if that's not an issue, then you have the pediatrician just draw labs on that ferritin. If they are an issue and they're going to take them out, I usually ask the doctor, "Hey, while they're under, can we do labs while they're already getting this taken care of? So I don't have to put them twice. Um, so it's still something to check into um, in terms of the ferritin. But I would say the more pressing concern that I have is that he's having snoring every night consistently, and he is having uh, intermittent night tears, and he's having disorganized sensory processing. And I will say this, it's strange to say, but when kids start to have long-term chronic disrupted sleep because of something like a sleep apnea, it can cause them to have um, some, it's almost like an acid stomach, and so the fact that he's saying his stomach is bothering him without seeing it related to anything else. Now, if you notice he's eating more of a certain food or his bowel movements are off, then it could be related to that. But I've certainly worked with kids where their stomach was hurting, honestly, just because they were overproducing cortisol because of the fact that they weren't getting enough sleep and they were getting kind of an acid stomach as a result of that. Um, and it kind of goes into the same family as having even like some anxiety type symptoms. So it could be... Diet based, but it also could just be a symptom of being chronically exhausted.
3: Got it. Yeah, after 10 hours of sleep, he still and he's tired.
1: Yes, yeah, that's never a good sign. Kids, when they sleep, they should wake up really well rested, happy. You know, if they're grumpy, if they're taking forever to wake up, um, then that means they're getting compensatory sleep and they're at such a sleep deficit that they feel worse after they sleep. And I don't, I mean, I think all parents have at some point taken a nap because they were exhausted and felt worse (laughs) when they woke up. And that's kind of what it feels like. It's not quality sleep and it's not restorative sleep.
3: And then I get rid of that referral through this pediatrician, correct?
1: It honestly just depends on your insurance. So um, some require the pediatrician to send a referral to see a specialist and others don't. Um, So you could either just call the ENT office if you know of one or at Children's Hospital or something like that, or you can talk to the pediatrician. I mean, I personally always like to talk to the pediatrician first, but, you know, you want to make sure that you have a pediatrician that you have that kind of relationship with where they're supporting you and they're saying, yeah, let me put the referral in, or I know these really great practice in ENTs. So, even if your insurance doesn't require it, it's still something worth bringing up with the pediatrician because they're the one that has seen your child for six years. You know, so um, if you have a supportive pediatrician, I would... Definitely want to loop them into the conversation, but just know that you cannot check adenoid size without a camera up the nose or without an x-ray. I've had some parents who say, oh, the doctor said that their adenoids are fine. And I said, from what test? And they said, oh, they looked in their mouth. I'm like, well, they can't see them. They can only see their tonsils. So again, that's why I just want to make sure that they're really getting the full evaluation, especially because of the snoring. It's not normal for children to snore when they sleep it means something is obstructing their airway and that's not a good sign.
3: Well, thank you for the information. I appreciate it.
1: Yes, no, you're very welcome.
3: Okay, so we have two more
0: questions. Um, Elsa, how about uh, Parker? Did you have another question? No, sorry, I'll unraise my hand. I thought I unraised it. <laughs> that's okay. It's tricky. Are there any other questions? Um, that helped me as well because I... Um,
2: he also, um, Mackenzie, he also snores when he sleeps. He's actually sleeping right now, and he's really, really loud. So mm-hmm. that EMT, I can't, maybe you can probably hear him. How old is your son? He's mouth, he's two.
1: Oh, yeah. Is his mouth wide open? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely see an EMT. So I think... of the referrals for sleep medicine uh, between the ages of two and four are because of obstructive sleep apnea. That's really common at this age. Um, And I will say this, as a parent who both of my children had their adenoids out, one at age two and one at age three, um, because they were snoring, they were mouth-breathing. My son actually didn't have any symptoms. He just looked like he was sleeping all night long. But um, he was really emotional during the day. He would cry really easily. He would throw fits really easily. And I couldn't figure out because I mean, it looked like tired behavior. And then one night I could hear him snoring. And one morning he woke up and his breath was really bad. Um, now he was older when he had his outside. So I think it's just been happening for a lot longer. Um, my daughter, I caught it earlier with her. Um, but for both of them, um, it was a really straightforward surgery. It took about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, the recovery was really... Easy as well. I think they both had to take Motrin for a night or two. And then um, it was after about a week or so of everything just kind of healing up in there, because of course it's still swollen from the surgery, um, their sleep was just off the charts improved. They both were totally different kids during the day in terms of regulation. Um, So I know that when people talk about adenoidectomies and things like that, it feels really scary to think about. But um, honestly, the impact it has on the sleep quality is tremendous. And so, um, you know, and again, that may not be what's going on. I have some kids who go in and the ENT puts them on Flonase and that takes it. And it's great. <laughs> so uh, it doesn't always end in an adenoidectomy but, or tonsillectomy, but um, but if it does, just as a parent, I want to say that um, I've always been so, 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 so glad that I got my kids' um, removed when it was problematic because, it just made everything easier. They were also just improving more in their developmental skills because they were sleeping better. I mean, it really, sleep is the foundation for all of your skills. And so um, it plays into everything. Um, So if that's something that's going on, yeah, if you're a child snoring, mouth breathing, any of that stuff, let the ENT take a look. You know, that soft tissue x-ray of the head and neck is very fast. Doesn't take that long, doesn't hurt. Um, And the radiologist Mm -hmm. gets a good look at what's going on in there because um, it just plays a big role. uh, And everything plays a big role in language development at this age, too.
2: I see. Yeah, and he wakes up every about three to four hours to get some water. Oh, Oh,
0: yeah. Wow, that his mouth
2: is dry. (laughs) (laughs)
1: He's like, oh, I'm all dried out in here. (laughs) You're you're very welcome. Very welcome.
0: Also, wasn't able to get her mic to work, so she has another question. She says, "My son is four, and he has taken Zarbies, Z-A-R-B-E-E-S, for two and a half years. I'm concerned about nightmares. He has no good sleep schedule. Without it, he will not sleep. There are times that he is up for twenty hours straight. He was born without a pituitary gland." And it does have some light perception. Okay.
1: So, um, so yeah, I mean, again, so melatonin, um, you know, obviously is going to be a component to it. Now, the thing is, is that the longer you take it, the less effective it is at, um, at doing its job. You're <laughs> what ends up happening, unfortunately, is that the brain thinks you're making extra melatonin, and so it slows down its own natural production. Now, if you're not having natural production of melatonin, then um, we don't see as much of that happening, but um, not to beat this drum again, but the ferritin number is going to make that melatonin more effective and less likely to cause nightmares. Um, But at the same time, um, if if we've kind of timed out on the melatonin or if you need more of a time-release melatonin, um, this is the time where I would start working with the sleep medicine doctor because the sleep medicine doctor is going to run those those labs anyway and look at vitamin D and magnesium and iron and ferritin, um, but also is going to have other options for sleep regulation outside of melatonin. And even though sleep medicine sounds a little bit more intense as compared to melatonin, um, these are kind of micro doses. They you know are really well established um, treatment protocols for children with sleep disorders and. For children who really need them, they are so, so helpful because they desperately need that sleep and your family needs that sleep. And so, um, so I would recommend for your son, um, honestly, just getting connected with a sleep medicine doctor. Like I said, Children's Hospital has um, excellent uh, sleep clinics, whether it's um, children's there. Um, I... Work uh, with uh, sometimes with the director of the clinic at Children's Hospital of Orange County, and he is an excellent, excellent sleep physician. Um, So, Children's is obviously a a great place to um, connect with a sleep clinic. Um, You know, and then I know sometimes it can take a little while to get in to meet with a sleep medicine physician. So, in the meantime, just talking with the pediatrician. you know, again, looking at some of these, the things that the pediatrician can look into, like the ferritin for you and things like that. The, the pediatrician also would know more about the time-released melatonin um, and, uh, and just letting the pediatrician know I'm, I'm having some concern. Without the melatonin, the sleep is not great. He can, you know, just stay awake without any ability to fall asleep. But then if he does take it, he's more prone to nightmares. We're not seeing great sleep quality. and um, And again, sometimes even just taking an iron supplement A magnesium and a vitamin D, which are all natural things, all things that you need to have in conjunction with melatonin can make the melatonin more effective and less likely to cause nightmares. Um, The other thing I will say so, we know that melatonin can cause nightmares, um, but if we see kids having uh, consistent nightmares, I always again just come back to the gut because separate from melatonin, when I see children who are not on it who are having night terrors um, or nightmares, I'm sorry. Um, oftentimes they have they are eating something that they are intolerant to, and that is triggering them as well. Um, so again, I know there's different avenues to kind of explore, but I would definitely try to go ahead and get a referral into the sleep clinic at Children's, meet with one of the physicians. You don't have to necessarily have a sleep study, um, but even just to be able to work with the doctor and let them know what you've tried up to this point. The sleep study is really just to um, rule out sleep apnea or uh, seizure activity or things like that. If he doesn't have any markers for those types of sleep concerns, then it's stressful. It's not very good data because the four-year-olds going to a little that stuff stay in place. So I usually just say start with a consult with the doctor to just go over lab results, sleep history, um, all of that type of piece, and see what the sleep medicine doctor recommends. And then... Um, Take it from there, but like I said, in the meantime, you can always bring this up to the pediatrician, see what other options there are, and see if starting a regimen with the iron, the magnesium, and the vitamin D would maybe help make that melatonin that you're currently using even more effective in the short term.
0: Thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate you being here. Um, great information. Um, I think this was very helpful to our family. And um, I thank you, families, for joining us this evening. I wish you all a, a very nice evening, and thank you again for joining us.